I've been accused in my formal life of uh, being that guy at parties or get-togethers, happy hours that would bring up those uh, topics that, you know, uh, I guess we're supposed to never talk about, uh, you know, those being sex, politics, religion, you know, just the trials and tribulations of living and existing in humankind and all that bullshit. Um, I would be that guy that would bring that shit up. And uh, I learned uh, pretty quickly that I was doing it in the wrong venue. Uh, you pretty much don't want to hear about that shit if you're, you know, five white claws deep and ready to go to, you know, a nightclub in downtown San Diego. Uh, instead, what I learned was the best thing for me to do is to just record a podcast where I talk about these things. Uh, I think that most of the people that I've had the pleasure of interviewing or talking to in other podcasts that I've done uh, have expressed the, uh, I guess, encouragement to move forward with my own idea, my own vision of what I want to talk about and what I want to do. And uh, this podcast is going to be really uh, the fruition of that. I hope that's a fucking word. Um, anyways, The End with Adam is hosted by yours truly, Adam Albari. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, basically all of the things that have led from one end of our lives to the beginning of another. And uh, these stories and examples are going to stretch through different parts of time, different parts of my life, different parts of some of my guest lives. And what they're going to illustrate is the ability that we all have to uh, go from one end of our lives where we feel like the walls have closed in, we've pretty much exhausted all of our resources, and we are fucked. Um, and instead, what we try to illuminate here is that the end is but a beginning, and in this podcast, we tried to shed some light on what that beginning might look like and how that end uh, comes to its uh, ultimatum at that point. So, anyways, let's get started. Friends from a sleepy Maryland suburb that I lived in during my primary education would trade insults and obscenities with a perfected, focused aggression. In a way, there was where that I learned how to socialize with groups in general. Now, being black, insults are a form of comedy not unfamiliar to me, and as such it fits snugly into my developing personality. By the second year I'd been out of college, I'd become very skilled at insulting something sacred in a funny and charming way. My trick is simple, and it actually comes in steps. Check this out. Step one read the room. Are there any Jews present? Latins? Maybe someone who made the mistake of telling you they were a feminist? Step two, wait for an opening. There is nothing worse than rushing a joke. Taking time is key. Waiting for everyone to think that you're a well-addressed, well-spoken Negro who knows his place is imperative to this next step. Step three, pick the high-hanging fruit. Never make an easy joke. It's not respectable. Let the non-virgins by technicality commit that sin. It's your duty to be interesting. Now, if you're someone who thinks you're too polite, inept, or shy to pull off these steps, you're lacking in integrity, and you should probably find something better with your time to do than listen to me. Now, 
For those of us that know the truth, which is that we all want to wield that powerful scepter of conversational control in large groups, I have many more secrets to tell. Manipulation isn't a sellable item, nor is it my intention to sell it. But I want a tome of experiences that have helped me traverse this rapidly crumbling western ladder of capital that I happen to have been born at the bottom rung of. At least, being born at the bottom rung has been the story told by those who wanted to speak broadly on the, on the history of people that look like me. Now, funnily enough, none of those people ever asked me to confirm if this, in fact, was my personal experience. So, now that I've given you the preamble, let me gloat. I was born in Miami, Florida, in a very private enclave near Morningside Park. If you talk to a Miamian now, they'd say something like, Oh, you live near the design district downtown. Which sounds like a compliment, but within the nuanced Latino elitism, a language I happen to speak fluently, what they're really saying is, you're not from Coral Gables, you're not from the South, you're not from Miami, you're not from North Cuba. Back before the idea of gentrification was a commonplace kitchen table concept, the areas near the design district were heavily urban. Some places would even be considered blighted by today's standards. But no, that's not where I was born. No, I was a black Muslim baby playing with the daughters of Russian oligarchs at the Montessori School of Miami Beach. My father, the first black architect to graduate from the University of Miami, was a product of the city. And, of course, my mother was born of minor nobility in what, in what was then the Ethiopian Empire and had emigrated to the U.S. in 1970 to convert to Islam and marry my father later on, who had converted some years earlier himself. Um, I learned much later in life that my early years of living were composed of such uncommon details that it couldn't be or explained without several asides to historical moments or cultural underpinnings and anecdotes that would create these endless caveats. Um, but this was my norm. This was my place in Western society. And it was so abnormal that it could not be traversed without extremely sharpened social intelligence. With that realization, from a young age, I vowed to make it my primary responsibility to be known and confirmed as the smartest nigga in the room. Now, moving from Miami is a narrative instrument, but it's also a feature of my story. I didn't spend long in my quiet neighborhood Morningside Park. I was taking briskly at the age of eight to Plymouth Canton, Michigan. Moving is a long-standing feature of my family. As my mother put it, we are nomads. My, fa my father's constant relocation wasn't for any dramatic reason, but they were by contract car uh, architects and project managers like my mother. So any new contract meant a new move. And we weren't in total disregard. Uh, I mean, we were always relocated near the best school districts, most importantly, at least 45 minutes away from any major city. I'm a suburbanite to my core. And until my, finally fi my, until my final family move to Columbia, Maryland, where I spent my final years in high school, I thought the suburbs would be the place that I would spend the rest of my days. It's kind of interesting how I was uh, completely cool with that idea. Thinking back on it now, I mean, what a hell world I would have signed myself up for if I really thought that that was the end of the earth. Uh, Columbia, Maryland, not that it's a bad place. It's a beautiful suburb, honestly the best. But uh, if I knew then where I would end up and go and see uh, in the following years, I don't know how I'd react. 
think I'd be excited, but a part of me would say, well, how soon after all that traveling would you get back here? Well, uh, I don't know what I'd say to him, to be honest. Happy, happy Halloween, folks. What are you going to do tonight? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay right the fuck home. But what are you going to do? I remember there were times where Halloween, even though I didn't celebrate it growing up as a Muslim, were still some of the best nights of the year, uh, mainly around, you know, that late teenage, early college years where Halloween parties were sort of, uh, I wouldn't say the main event of the holiday season, but certainly one of the main sort of introductions into that kind of fall partying uh, cycle that you would get into around the holidays. So Halloween was kind of the opening ceremony to the following, you know, madness that was to come back in those days. Um, mainly I'm talking about 2015, 2016. Those were the real good Halloween parties, you know, before political correctness or any of that stuff. But it's really even more than that. It was, we were younger. We would take more risks, do crazier shit, have insaner costumes. I mean, the shit that we would put on for costumes, the amount of fucking white Obamas I saw uh, in my 2014 uh, Halloween parties were uh, definitely worth noting. Um, but now we're at this time, I think, at least my age group, where we can definitely have those parties, have that time. But it's never going to be what it was back then, you know, back when there were no consequences, when you could say whatever you wanted, when you could drink ad nauseum and try the jungle juice that probably has got the crushed up Xanax in it. You know the deal. You know, back in those days when there were no consequences, there was kind of special time that uh, Halloween gave us where we could really get crazy after a, a long summer of kind of monotonous, you know, hangouts and you know, smoke sessions and walking around in the forest, maybe a little bit of hiking, you did a vacation, but now it's the fall. Now you're hunkered in, if at least you're in the East Coast or in anywhere in the real world where there's four seasons. Um, the fall is that demarcation of, all right, now I'm locked into whatever lifestyle I'm, you know, really about. And uh, I think uh, a good Halloween party is kind of a great representation of that. It kind of reminds you what gr groups you're in, what circles you put yourself in and are a part of. And uh, it's definitely uh, one that I've got uh, plenty of stories of um, that mark specific points in my life that I kind of want to go over today. Um, since this is coming out on Halloween, I thought, hey, why don't I tell some Halloween stories? Um, they won't be as spooky as I wanted them to be, but they're definitely going to be entertaining. So uh, get ready for that. I'd like to start 
by saying that this has not been that long since any of these events have passed. I know that people say it takes time to put things into perspective, but I don't think it should take too long to accurately examine the past. Like we've talked about before, that's kind of what we're doing here in this podcast. But in fact, I'll go ahead and say that I actually totally disagree with the idea that it takes a lot of time to process. I think the most clarity you'll ever have is being in the moment. It's time and age that skew the facts. It's our own need to make ourselves the protagonists in the narrative that we're all a part of. But most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, we're all side characters. We may think we're the center of the universe, and that the things that happen to us are of a divine directive. But in the moment, we know otherwise. We know it doesn't really matter. Whatever you thought you did in the past are subjective memories littered with falsehood. Anyways, the following events began around 5 p.m. on the last day of the year 2011. This New Year's Eve festivities had been planned months in advance, and at sundown on December 31st, 2011, it was time to put these plans into action. Now, we've heard of, and I'm going to have to change this, this guy's name because he's a real guy, um, but his real name is so, like, cinema quality, like, I'm I'm almost I almost feel robbed that I can't use it. So I'm gonna come up with one that I think is is equally as cool, but it's not, just to let you know. His real name is fucking dope. But um I'm gonna call him let's see, what's a good one? Um Eamon Rothko. So uh we're at Eamon Rothko's New Year's Eve party, uh and weeks earlier we decided that it was a good place to kind of start out our night. We had planned this uh some time in advance. By we, I'm referring to the people I considered to be my friends at the time. Let's give them all fake shit and fake names, uh, shall we? Let's call everyone who uh, we can hear something interesting. Um, I had one friend that everyone thinks uh, looked just like Justin Bieber, so that's what we'll call him. And another one that uh, we almost never called by his Christian name, so I think it's best to stick with what we all called him, which was Gainer. My closest friend, who unlike the other two I'm still very much in contact with, goes by the initials in his name, which I'll change to TJ. I think that's enough to properly hide their identities, but maybe not. I don't really care. I thought I'd just add some fun to this uh, story by creating some anonymity, but uh, this is already pretentious and ambiguous, so bear with me. Justin Bieber and I are already finishing up rolling joints for the night. Uh, we're on TJ's kitchen table by the time Gaynor finally answers his fucking phone and tells us that he's on his way to pick us up. There are 12 joints in total. That's three for each of us. I do the math in my head as I finish licking the papers into place. We still have about two grams left in a plastic bag that's wedged into a tiny medicine bottle. Once we finished rolling, we finished and started our antsy kind of period of waiting around, you know, when the driver finally comes when you're 16 and you're about to do something illegal, you kind of have that moment where you're all just kind of standing there cracking jokes, but you know, you're gearing up. Now, eventually he got there at about 10, uh, let's say 10 minutes before the party was supposed to start, um, which was good because we had some time to smoke blunts there and kind of chill. Um, now, uh, we, we're actually uh, 
about a 10 minute drive from uh, TJ's house uh, to the actual uh, party. Now, uh, considering how fat and lazy and drug addicted Gainer was, uh, and I still think is though, last I saw him, he lost a considerable amount of weight, like in a really healthy way. Um, and I think he's doing good. I, I hope he is. He's a really good, kind soul, I, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but uh, he'd uh, take uh, at least, you know, a good hour to get us 10 minutes down the road. Um, but we were waiting there in TJ's kitchen with 12 joints rolled semi-perfectly and two more grams stashed away, like I'd said, post for post-ball drop. And uh, as soon as we can all talk about how much fun tonight is going to be, uh, there it is. Gainer comes in, and uh, we knew once we saw sort of our armaments for the night, Gainer had the car fully ready to go. You know, we had all the extra amenities you would need at the time uh, the eye drops, the uh, you know, fucking uh, air freshener in case you get pulled over, um, the whole thing. We were stacked, ready to go. Um, uh, but this was going to be a very specific party. This was going to be historical. And uh, we knew how high the stakes were. After all, this was Columbia, which meant a few things. Firstly, we'd be arrested if we were caught with weed, uh, not let off with a stern talking to or forced to pay a fine, but shackled, taken away, and locked in a cage for later judgment. This was the rule of law at the time, but of course things have changed since then. I think it's like a $100 fine now. However, since we were all 16-year-olds old with uh, squeaky clean records and not-so-squeaky-clean pastimes, we knew there was uh, something of a situational hazard that we would be forced to overcome. Gainer got there by the time we'd excited ourselves to the point of total indifference as to whether we got caught, and we quickly exited T, uh, TJ's home and climbed into Gainer's 2012 Ford Fusion. He'd gotten it because his parents wanted him to get a car, and uh, they decided to get him the nicest, uh, smoothest driving economy class car they could find. It was a beautiful car, I mean, with all the necessary trimmings and, you know, bells and whistles at the time. Uh... The only problem was that Gaynor was a sociopathic maniac and uh, he could easily run over a sidewalk full of people and continue on without breaking the dynamic axles. So I got into the passenger side seat after yelling shoddy no blitz, which meant don't fucking run up to the passenger side door like a 10 year old and grab the seat before I do. Now, once comfortably inside with our seatbelts fastened and my iPod connected to the auxiliary unit in the car, we sped off towards what the fuck was I calling him? Uh, Eamon Rothko's New Year's party. Now, once we're on the highway, we decided it was time to smoke a couple of joints. I took out my personal collection and lit the most elegant looking one. Uh, I passed my lighter to TJ, who did the same, and soon I could smell that Justin Bieber had lit his too. Gainer let go of the steering wheel going 65 on a rush hour highway as he lit his own monstrosity of a blunt. The car got smoky soon and we cracked the side window to allow some oxygen to mix in with the cannabinoids in the air. By, let's say, 10.50. I remember the exact time just because I do. Um, we were completely smacked. Uh, we didn't have much longer till we got to Amon, so uh, we knew that once we entered this small part of Columbia that was called Huntington, where Amon lived, we'd be entering the real American surveillance state. This was an area suffering from an acute case of post-recession new money poverty. 
And uh, as a result, the uh, crime of our capital, crime rate of our uh, city had become Huntington, had become its capital. Um, and uh, not only it was kind of blighted, but uh, it wasn't actually dangerous. Uh, it was more like any place with a lack of economic resources. It just created its own economy, concentrating on selling illegal substances. For this reason, it was a cop hangout spot of our town. It's kind of the place where you'd drive by and you'd see a couple of cops taking selfies with poor people that they'd shackled and humiliated on the side of the street. Uh, it was a neoconservative wet dream of authoritative justice, cleaning the streets of undesirables who had degraded the property value of the surrounding areas. We get to Eamon's place sometime into 8 o'clock. Uh, no, sorry, not 8, like 11, something like that. And uh, for some reason, the house is already fucking packed. And I was confused considering how early it was. But uh, once I noticed almost all the faces that occupied the cramped and sweaty townhouse were all Huntington natives, things started to make sense. We walked through the house and decided it was impossible to go upstairs considering the amount of bodies piled into the kitchen and the living room. Instead, we went straight into the basement. We saw a few familiar faces there. My friends from other schools who'd all been tipped off to the party were already rolling up as well. Except, since they were from another part of Columbia, the richer part, they didn't know whose house they were in. See, Eamon Rothko, who is now a Marine fighting for our nation, was possibly one of the most dangerous, delusional, and sociopathic people that I'd come across in Columbia. He was a part of that whole Patuxent trash category. Uh, that's some of my friends in other sides of town, uh, a word that they would use to reference Huntington dropouts with more tattoos than brain cells. Uh, they sold ter terrible weed and they did terrible things. They were those kinds of guys. But they threw parties and we all went. However, the friends I ran into in the basement must have underestimated this uh, potentiality for violence that these Patuxent trash kids uh, could actually execute since they thought it may have been a good idea to empty a cigarello uh, tobacco uh, right onto the carpet of a uh, basement. Uh, it didn't take long for us to figure out, you know, what was going to happen next. So Eamon comes downstairs, seeing the dumping rello guts on the floor, and proceeds to go back upstairs and grab his Glock 17 and come back downstairs and threaten them with it. I think his exact words were, when he saw the rello guts on the floor, hold on, let me get my strap. Everybody froze. Now, some of the girls screamed, some of the boys and girls laughed. My friends and I stood by and just still watched. The kids profusely apologized and insisted that they'd let them clean the basement uh, and, you know, help them clean up after the party. He yelled at them a little more and then said a couple of rap lyrics before going upstairs and continuing whatever he was doing upstairs. Now, after that moment, Justin Bieber and I noticed the energy of the party had changed. Uh, as the night ticked on, more of the 15 and 16-year-old girls who had just entered the Howard County party circuit had gotten sicker and sicker. Now, Justin Bieber and I looked at each other, and we noticed one of the girls was completely blacked out and attempting to stand up. Her friends ran over and helped her get up and attempted to fight through the already doubled crowd to get her into a bathroom. I think they succeeded considering they disappeared for the rest of the party. Other people were hooking up, a couple girls were dying in various corners of the basement, and I was lighting my third joint of the night. Now, we're close to ball drop, and we'd lost Gaynor. He'd retreated back to his car with TJ and some girls, and 
I guess he was smoking blunts and, you know, other stuff. But uh, by 12.30, the ball had dropped. I mean, we kind of were going to be there for the rest of the night. I still hadn't seen my friend, so I felt like, you know, what the fuck? But also at 12.30, I think that moment, that time period, was the true peak of the adolescent debauchery that was going on uh, at uh, Eamon Rothko's house. Uh, this was the moment that I'll never forget because it was a true unadulterated non-Hollywood portrayal of our millennial generation. It was countless bottles of liquor strewn around the floor, more marijuana in the air than actual oxygen, and just this feeling of tense chaos that at the time I confused with bliss. It was truly the zeitgeist that I felt. The feeling of 2011 itself was in the air. Pure sedation. Then Justin Bieber and I began to feel our spidey sentences uh, tingle. We could almost hear the bull stampede approaching. We looked at each other and in a tone that I knew he couldn't hear but could comprehend on a much more basic level. I said, I think it's about that time. Justin Bieber nodded and we quickly pushed our way out of the party. Once outside, we ran across a car-filled lot and into another townhouse cul-de-sac on the other side of the street where Gaynor's car was parked. We hopped in, and just as I had a moment to look out the window, we saw them. The police. They'd finally arrived. They were there with so many people at Eamon's house that the party had actually flooded outside. The first two cop cars sped down the narrow street, then two more. We waited until the police officers had exited their vehicles and were yelling orders at the children and, and out, inside and outside, really. Um, now, Gaynor, as carefully as he could, exited the area, and I looked to my left and saw girls jumping off of Eamon's second-story balcony, fracturing their limbs uh, in order to escape. Justin Bieber... And TJ and I laughed, as we always did. Uh, but my high, in my mind, it didn't interpret this as comical. I could only feel the empathy for all those children trapped inside of that house. I knew the feeling of complete desperation. That they were the only thing between you and escaping the jaws of law enforcement is a few feet of discomfort and danger. We had all escaped them. And I'm happy to say that even today... Uh, I still carry kind of a clean record. Now, we went back to TJ's house since his dad was out of town and decided to finish our New Year's Eve there. We were completely safe. We went over the events countless times that night and how all those conveniently, uh, you know, aware of our surroundings we were and how Justin Bieber and I knew the cops were already coming, you know, kind of that sort of uh, post-battle, you know, uh, kind of camaraderie. And I said, I could fucking smell it. Justin Bieber nodded, and I kept saying it for the rest of the night. After careful consideration, I think I was actually onto something. I think there is a human evolutionary trait that allows us to sense impending doom. For some reason, Justin Bieber and I always knew when shit was about to go down. We always trusted our instincts first. And it was our instincts that allowed us to happily start a new year off with our freedom intact. And we were all thankful for that. But something didn't sit well with me as Gaynor, TJ, and Justin Bieber were all continuing laughing and talking about Eamon's party. I felt like Columbia, and probably other suburbs, were actually quite detrimental to developing children. Now, I'm not just referring to super police, but pretty much everything I saw that night. How comical it actually all was bothered me at the time. 
Now, when my friends and I talk about it, we still laugh like it was nothing, but in fact, it actually quite disturbed me. I was disturbed because it was nothing. We'd all reached and we'd all risked, really, the ends of our health and our freedom to stand in a room for a few hours. Eamon could have had a much more uh, modest party that wouldn't have gotten busted, but for some reason, it was hyped to the point that I couldn't be anything but a disaster. I remember thinking this, and in my high mind, it made me take out my phone and Google the concept of uh, self-fulfilling prophecies. To me, that's what it seemed like Columbia had the potential to do to kids. It was the most perf perfected form of an American suburb, and one of the first, actually, I might add, historically. And uh, it seemed to me that it could have the potential to make kids feel so safe that the only thing that they ever really want is danger. It made me think that laughing, just thinking about how pretentious and overplayed that idea is, but that night I did know what I was believing and feeling was true. So why did I tell that story about New Year's on Halloween? To me, I think there's a lot of things that are scary about that. One, that night could have ended very differently and I'd have a very different story to tell you. Two, I think there's something to be said about that time where something as simple as, you know, maybe having a few drinks underage or getting caught with marijuana could completely change the course of your life. That is uh, truly terrifying. And, uh, you know, ghouls and goblins aside, the jaws of law enforcement are nothing uh, short of an absolute monster. And uh, the idea of being caught in that at a young age, and I'm sure we all listening to this, uh, maybe it's happened to you or you have a close you know, family member where that has happened, uh, understand what horror it actually is. So this story, while trying to be funny, was really more of an example of how close we come to things like that and uh, how scary all of that can really be when you look at it in retrospect but also how scary it really is right at that moment when it's happening. But uh, that's what I've got for you at this segment. Next segment, we're going to go into advice, so uh, stay tuned for that. But I hope you enjoyed this story. And um, again, I'm sorry if anybody's name came out and they don't like how I portrayed them. I'm fucking sorry. Uh, sue me. I mean, whatever. Let's go to court. I don't care. I just It's content, and it's truthful and it's honest and uh, I'm, I'm not trying to fuck your life up and I really did try to make this as uh, anonymous as possible but anyways thank you for listening and uh, that was my Halloween story for this episode of the end
Advice, 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 advice. Welcome to the advice section of The End with Adam. Uh, here I'm going to do uh, something that I like to hear on other podcasts and I thought I'd bring it into my own, um, where I answer anonymous advice and uh, I kind of give my two cents on you know, some of the ways that people can try to heal themselves or solve the problems that they find uh, to seem to be insurmountable uh, when they're currently facing them. Because I've definitely been in that situation and I feel as though at this point in my life, I can give some kind of advice. So, excuse me, indigestion, indigestion. So what am I going to do right now? I am going to read an anonymous post and then I'm going to give advice. So here's the post. It's called how to stop worrying about the future. Now the poster says, I find that I am unable to stop worrying about the next thing that I need to do or the next thing that might happen. Today I took a walk. I didn't overeat and I exercised. It was a good day, but I didn't feel good because I'm worrying about work tomorrow. When I'm with my friends, when I'm on a date, even while I'm having sex, I can never be present in the moment. I'm constantly worrying about what comes next. Is it possible to stop doing this? Now, this was an anonymous poster, and um, I am uh, going to thank them for being, you know, honest and putting their information out there so that I can address it. Uh, So here is what I can say about the future and the worry that comes with it. Um, The future is something that is completely outside of your uh, ability to control. So put into perspective uh, the idea of being afraid of something that uh, actually doesn't know that you exist, uh, has no concern for whether or not you are doing well or having a good time, and simply moves forward uh, regardless of where you might be in the way in terms of, you know, its movement. That is the future. That is time. That is what we all live in. And it is really uh, unacceptable for a lot of people to have to recognize that, the fact that there is nothing they can do to control uh, what's going to happen in the future. Um, There was another part of what he said that I think um, I can completely relate to, and I think a lot of people listening to can also relate to, which is the idea of being present, being present, you know, Uh, when you're doing something, especially if you're doing something that on paper you should enjoy, like fucking a hot girl or going to a really dope party or, you know, buying uh, sheepskin leather gloves. Uh, Sometimes uh, when you do that, you get this sense that you're not really in the moment. You're kind of inside of your own head, looking outside, seeing this sort of third person uh, version of yourself doing the thing that you would have uh, otherwise, uh, you know, enjoyed and of course, fantasized about uh, multiple times. I don't exactly know why that is. I don't know why we uh, don't find uh, ourselves in the moments that we would want to be present the most. Um, All I can say is that it's common and that it happens and that it's actually just a, a feature of a lot of people's lives, including my own. Um, What I can say in terms of how to solve that is uh, to simply give yourself some perspective. Um, If your life wasn't good maybe five years ago, five months ago, five weeks ago, uh, and you're doing something that you would have wanted to have done back then, 
uh, it's good to reflect, go back, say, God damn, I was living underneath a fucking uh, truck in Australia, you know, two and a half months ago. And now I'm on a date with the girl of my dreams, uh, you know, great, you know, <laughs> how much better could it get? Uh, but of course, if it's not that dramatic, you can find smaller things like, uh, yeah, that fucking stupid day at work, that fucking idiot that I always have to deal with my job was being extra fucking stupid that day. But look at it. 48 hours later, I'm on a date with a girl of my dreams. And that's kind of a good way to reground yourself, put yourself back in your own shoes um, to give yourself a outside perspective of the past and then loop it into a event that's happening currently. Um, do I think that this is like a foolproof, yeah, you're going to solve all your problems if you do this uh, method? No. But do I think it's helpful? Absolutely. It's helped me. Um, I know for a lot of people that uh, – have experienced the up and down sort of nature, this sort of turbulence, the thresher that is the 2010s and going into the 2020s. Uh, there can be a lot of moments where we can go back and reflect and say, damn, I was here at this time and now I'm here at that time. And just that realization alone can really bring you into the present and really help you appreciate the moments that are good. Uh, but to that poster, I would say, I mean, if it's been a long-term thing, if it's been something that you've never really been able to shake, this idea that you can't live in the present, then it may be something a lot deeper. Uh, it may be a uh, sort of psychological issue that you might need to you know, talk to somebody about. I am a huge, huge supporter of therapy. And I think that you know, everyone listening to this, if you do have the ability to see a therapist, if you don't have health insurance, whatever, I'm sorry, steal, uh, you know, fucking uh, rob liquor stores, do whatever you can to make the money so that you can go ahead and, you know, see a therapist at a regular time because uh, they, especially a DBT therapist, a dialectical behavioral therapist, uh, these people really, most of them know what they're doing and they really know, at least for people in our generation, how to get to the bottom of a lot of our neuroses. So to that guy, I would say, uh, if you want to live in the moment, you've got to remember the past. Um, you've got to remember the past and you've got to be thankful for the moment that you're in now if it's better. Uh, and that can ground you uh, very easily and very quickly. So that's my advice to uh, Homeboy Anonymous Poster. Uh, thanks again for sharing. And uh, now we got another one, so stay tuned. Okay, number two. Putting yourself in a hole. Boy, does that go with the theme of this podcast. Uh, the writer writes, how many of you have successfully turned your lives around after being a mess? Did it take being rock bottom and which habits honestly cemented your change? Now, um, I think with this, it's always a different answer depending on who you're talking to and what exactly it is their problem in putting themselves into a hole uh, actually began with. Uh, but the universal rule of all of this, from what I've learned, is that you have to first acknowledge that you are in a hole. Uh, that is a very hard thing to do. In a hole, you can still see the light, but there's really nothing around you. 
the important, uh, I guess, detail of trying to get yourself out of a hole is number one, realizing how far exactly you've dug yourself into one. Now, if it's something that is uh, manageable, you can just go, I don't know, fucking go to an AA class for a couple of weeks and get your shit together. Maybe you quit drinking or maybe you, uh, you know, do start, you know, kind of filling in for things that you would normally do at work uh, just to show that you're a team player. Uh, maybe you want to even help out people that you don't really fuck with anymore. You might hit them up and see, hey, do you need your fucking car towed to the place where they, you know, fix the tires every month? Or do you want, uh, I don't know, uh, get a dinner or something like that? There are things you can do uh, that can start to create uh, a momentum that will eventually bring you outside of that hole. Uh, that hole is uh, meant for you. It's what you built. So uh, it's only going to take the things that you know how to do to get out of them. Uh, a lot of people can find solace in religion, and uh, I'm definitely not one of those people who is against that. But I think at the end of the day, it's the actions that you commit during that time in which you want to start to turn your life around that can actually make the difference. Uh, the whole itself uh, is always going to be there, actually. And this is something that I feel like uh, many people who have struggled with this can relate to. Um, it's not that when you dig yourself out of a hole, you go ahead and pat it with dirt and it's gone. It's that that hole is a representation of a uh, very grave mistake or series of uh, decisions that you've created in your life that uh, typically don't go away. Uh, they stay there. So... A part of getting out of the hole is making sure you never go back there again, and that is the uh, imperative rule for anybody that is looking to turn their life around is once you do make that turn across the street and into a new world, you never look back. Looking back is exactly how you might exactly, uh, I don't know, slip and fall and trip right the fuck back into the bottom of that hole that you were trying to get out of so badly. So what I would say to uh, this poster is that, uh, one, never look back when you do make a change. Number two, find the small things you can do in your life that can make you feel uh, motivated enough to start turning your life around. And three, uh, never think that it's over. It's not. Uh, if you have terminal cancer, and uh, God bless you if you do, I hope uh, things work out. But if you don't have some sort of debilitating disease, you're never out of the game. The game actually is never done with you until you are uh, in that situation where you can no longer play. So it's not really up to you whether or not you want to keep going. You do have to and you will. And it's just about exactly what you're going to do to make sure that when you do start playing the game again, you play it right. And you make sure that there's no more holes, ditches, graves, or any kind of impediments to get you to where you want to go. Uh, all of that being aside, it's not an easy game to play, and it's definitely not a game that wants you to 
enjoy it while you're doing it. It's a game that's meant to test uh, your fortitude as a man or as a woman or as someone that is trying to uh, make something of themselves in this world. And when you play that game, that game wants all of you. And it uh, can sometimes feel so overwhelming that you'd rather uh, go ahead and uh, dig yourself a good old fashioned hole and create whatever excuse you need to uh, basically uh, forfeit um, the opportunity you may have been given to create something bigger than yourself. So uh, that being said, and I did ramble, sorry, uh, there is the way to pull yourself out of the hole. It's just when you do pull yourself out of the hole, where are you going to go next? Uh, there's only two directions up and down. So uh, it's your choice to decide which one you want to go down. So that's number two. Everybody, uh, thanks again for listening to The End with Adam. I want to say that this was the first episode. It was a Halloween special, so there were some differences to the way that the format is going to change over time. Uh, but I do thank you if you made it this far uh, listening. And I want to say if you could please either comment, subscribe, or like any of the uh, Instagram posts on a underscore bari dot com or Instagram dot com. Uh, please do that just to get more awareness out for this podcast. Also visit www.theendwithadam.com and check out exclusive content as well as some of the older episodes from season one that uh, will be going behind a paywall very soon. So if you do want to listen to those, kind of get some more backstory on where uh, you know this uh, particular project is coming from, uh, check that out. And uh, don't be afraid to message me and let me know either how bad it is or, uh, you know, how much you want me dead or any of those things. Uh, please uh, go ahead and uh, uh, email me at uh, A-D-A-M-A-L-B-A-A-R-I at gmail.com and uh, give me your comments and suggestions as to how to make this podcast better, uh, what I can do to uh, get more sheepskin gloves and uh, things like that. So uh, please don't hesitate to talk and uh, please uh, keep listening. Uh, you guys are the best. Thank you. And I love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.